In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the Gospels, we have only one portrait of our Lord's childhood. But in this single depiction, we're likely to grasp the essential dynamic of all of it. If you think that raising children is difficult, you couldn't be more right. But poor Joseph and Mary, raising the Messiah. No doubt, they found themselves perplexed more than just in this recorded instance. And they found themselves in the impossible position of being in authority over the one who is in authority over all. St. Luke's single portrait of Jesus' childhood is not without its theological backdrop. We once again see that Mary and Joseph were good and pious parents who faithfully observed the religious customs of the Hebrew scriptures and brought their child into the same. In rough translation, it would certainly be accurate to say that Jesus grew up as part of a church-going family. The modern idea that Jesus wasn't religious or came to destroy religion is debunked both by how he was raised and by his continued piety from childhood through adult life. Similarly, the modern idea that parents should be careful to not bias their children in favor of Christianity and let the, children let the child decide for himself if he's going to follow God's word or not is here shown to be the spiritual insanity it really is. The primary vocation of all good Christian parents is to raise their children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. The task of each generation is to make the next generation even more pious, faithful, and Christian. Of course, this requires that we parents be very sober and realistic about the pressures that the world puts upon us and upon our children. In short, we should do absolutely everything within our power to bias our children toward God, our Father, toward Jesus, our Savior, toward the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, and toward the church that our triune God himself has established so that we might hear his word, receive his sacraments, and be strengthened in faith. The particular theological backdrop of Luke's portrait of our Lord's childhood is not only Mary and Joseph's religious piety, but specifically the Feast of the Passover. If you recall the original Passover, it was the final plague by which God released his people from slavery to Pharaoh. That night, all the firstborn male, males, Jew and Gentile, would be put to death by God. The only escape was the Passover meal, the lamb eaten and his blood painted on the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over that house. So it is indeed quite significant that it was at the time of this particular feast that Jesus, the firstborn son of Mary by flesh, firstborn son of Joseph by law, went missing. And this, there's already a foreshadowing of his death as the firstborn son who would die for both Jew and Gentile, to free us from bondage to Satan, and also a foreshadowing of his death as the Passover lamb, his blood causing the angel of death to pass over all of us, 
such that death would no longer be death, but a mere shadow of death. Our lives safe in the hands of God who saved us with his own firstborn son, with his own unblemished lamb. Now, when this feast was ended, Mary and Joseph left Jerusalem in the caravan of family and friends departing. No doubt they had seen Jesus among these family and friends and assumed that he had naturally come along with. But at the end of the first day of travel, he was nowhere to be found. It's terrifying misplacing a child even for a few seconds. Don't ask me how I know that. But you can imagine the anxiety of Joseph and Mary, all the more because of who their son was. Can you imagine the headlines? Father and mother misplaced the Messiah. Not just the one-day journey back, but for three days. Note again how telling this detail is in retrospect. For three days, they feared the worst. They feared their son's death and then found him alive. Not just one day of worry, but three days of agony. They finally found him, and where else but in the arcade? No, no, he's not me. In the church sitting with the pastor and vicar, listening and asking questions. Well, it was in the temple they found him, among the teachers who would never trouble their important selves to talk theology extensively with any mere 12-year-old. And yet here they were and had been for some three days. The teachers were taught by him who teaches all, And they were amazed, astonished at his understanding and at his answers. Of course, when Mary sees him, she simply cannot contain herself. Three days of maternal, emotional buildup finally burst out in that strange mixture of love, relief, and anger. As I once heard a mother say to her son, thank God you're alive, I'm going to kill you. Mary's heart pours out to her child. Son, why have you treated us so? Your dad and I have been looking everywhere for you in great distress. Imagine in that moment after three days of desperately searching and fearing the worst as all parents would, they finally find their son teaching the teachers, and what does he have to say for himself? In perfect innocence, and truly puzzled himself, he asks, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, as a parent, what on earth do you do with that? Can you imagine how perplexing this must have been? Not only was 12-year-old Jesus not worried or concerned about himself in the least, but he genuinely thought that his parents shouldn't be worried or concerned either. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
If these words were spoken with anything less than pure innocence, his parents would no doubt have disciplined that right out of him. But there he was, genuinely perplexed at them, as if they should have already known and already understood. I can imagine chills going down Joseph's back as he spoke these words. Mary pausing as she was covering him with worried kisses, pulling back from her embrace just long enough to look him in the eye and see if he was serious. He was, and he was genuinely perplexed at their distress. It's not so unlike how he was perplexed at the disciples' stress in the boat with the storm. In these things, we have a most simple, yet most profound summary of our Lord's entire childhood. Luke goes on to assure us of Jesus' demeanor. He was in no way disrespectful to his parents. He left with them for Nazareth and continued to be the good, obedient, and submissive son he had always been. But if anything at all had been made clear, even if only in hindsight, it's that Jesus' relationship with God his Father, superseded all else, including their relationship with him as his parents. Mary, at least initially, not knowing what to make of all of this, treasured it all up in her heart. In other words, she thought often on it, pondering it, praying about it. And as for Jesus, Luke tells us that he continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. One day I'll preach a sermon on that last line, but I don't think you're ready for it today. (laughs) Nonetheless, we can summarize what Luke is saying is this. Jesus was both the ideal son of God and the ideal son of man. Yet we are able to see how even the teachers in the temple and even his own parents were astonished by him and perplexed by him. That didn't end. In fact, it still goes on today. We ourselves find ourselves astonished and perplexed by him as well. Faith in Jesus is never as straightforward as we might like to think. As Christians, of course, there are doctrines we can learn and good deeds that we can do. But Jesus always remains, at least in part, a puzzle piece that we can't quite fit neatly into our faith. And the reason for that is rather simple. Our faith is too small. As he was genuinely perplexed by his parents' worry, genuinely perplexed by those disciples and the storm I mentioned, I have little doubt that he is in the same way genuinely perplexed by us as well. Not in any nasty or judgmental sort of way, but rather in perfect innocence, genuinely perplexed by our worry and by our fears. Are you not his? Has he not purchased you with his own blood? Has he who made you not also redeemed you? Has he who elected you before the foundation of the world now forgotten you? No, he who has elected you before the foundation of the world makes himself known to you. 
Is not his God and Father now your God and Father? Why are you so anxious, so distressed? Like Jesus' parents in the temple, like Martha in the kitchen, we are all anxious and troubled about many things. Why? O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner. That's why. When we confessed our sins just a few moments ago, where was your heart? Was it with the words or far from the words? Was it with your God and Father or far from Him? If there can be no good works apart from faith, then is it not also a lack of faith that is at the root of every sin? If you haven't taken opportunity to confess your sins to God openly, straightforwardly, as a dear and beloved child to a tender and merciful Father, then you're not likely to have heard his absolution either. Your Father knows your every weakness. He knows your every doubt. He knows all your regrets and a thousand more that you've forgotten. He knows how twisted up we all are with inner deceits, how filled we all are with disordered desires, desiring to be better, praying to be better, but somehow always seeming to fall into the same old ways. He knows that we are in one moment arrogantly and presumptuously secure and puffed up faux faith. And he knows how in the next moment we are fearful and anxious, terrified by things we should never be terrified of, deeply ashamed of what we really are inside and what we really have been. Our Father knows how we fail and have failed in all of our vocations, as children, first of all, then as father and mother, husband and wife, employer and employee, but most of all, as Christian, how far we've failed from being anything remotely like Christ. And yet, our Heavenly Father absolves us, forgives us, so as not to terrify us, he speaks to us through a sinful pastor's lips. He says, I forgive you all your sins. This is the most marvelous and perplexing thing about our God. He is good and just and tolerates no evil, but he is good and just and willing to forgive all evil. Thus, he gives his own son, not only to make atonement for our sins on the cross, but also to be the very righteousness that God credits to us. When God reckons us to be righteous, counts us to be righteous, declares us to be righteous, it's the righteousness of Jesus, a true human being, that he credits to us. We fell in the garden because we did not believe God's word. And we have fallen into countless sins since because we have not believed God's word. And so God has arranged that all shall be restored 
precisely when we do believe his word. And that word is as simple as it is profound. I forgive you, he says, for the sake of Jesus. And I reckon you to be righteous, clothed and covered with righteousness, simply because you have believed what I have said. Our God is, as the scriptures say, precisely the God who justifies the ungodly. And he reckons or counts our faith in his word as righteousness, as if we had never sinned at all. That's what Jesus won for us by his own righteousness and innocent life, by his own bitter suffering and death, that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That God might declare us to be forgiven and see us clothed in the righteousness and innocence of his own beloved son. And so God is not ashamed of you. Luther mentions three places where God wraps himself up in darkness. And all three of these appear in our lectionary readings we heard a minute ago. First, God wraps himself in darkness at Horeb, Mount Sinai, where God is wrapped in thick darkness and gives the law to Moses, and Moses puts the law onto the Ark of the Covenant. Second is in the temple itself, the innermost part of it, the holiest of holies, where Solomon recalls how the Lord said that there he will dwell in thick darkness. And the third place in which God wraps himself in darkness is, according to Luther, our faith. For faith is a kind of darkness insofar that faith cannot see. And yet faith is precisely that place in which God himself chooses to dwell. We, through faith, are now his temple his mount. And Jesus, his son, descends to that mount, enters into that temple in order to forgive us all things, to bestow upon us his own righteousness, and to teach us as perplexing as it all may be. Let us then, with Mary, treasure these things in our hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.